maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for downloading the Intelligent Squared podcast. For our listeners here in London, on December the 6th, we're excited to be welcoming the FT's undercover economist, Tim Harford, to our stage. He's going to be explaining how a messy approach to life can help you get to the top and how it's worked for the likes of Amazon's Jeff Bezos and even Donald Trump. You can buy tickets for that event at our website, intelligentsquared.com. Now, here's this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Well, thanks very much. We, we decided that, uh, that I, I would start because we, we presume that there is maybe a little bit of curiosity about what the hell is going on in the United States, uh, and I thought I would address that. Um, but I'll start by, by saying what a pleasure and, a, and an honor it is to be here. Uh, I've been coming to Europe since I was a kid. Um, like almost all Americans, I, I love Britain, love, uh, love things British. And one of the fun things about coming to Europe and to Britain in particular is you, you talk with British people about why American politics is so savage and stupid, and you help them understand what on earth is wrong with America. But now when I come to Europe in the last, uh, <laughs> you know, I just feel so much more at home, and it's more of a two-way conversation. Um, and, you know, and we conceived this, this evening a while ago, back when everybody assumed there's no chance that Trump could win. And the, the world is very different. 2016 is really a turning point. So it's a pleasure uh, and an honor to be here with you talking about it, and especially with, with Nick. I'll just give you the, very briefly the, the report for the United States. Uh, I'll start with the good news. Um, the, the good news uh, is that in the long run, crime is way down, the world is getting better, poverty is declining around the world, and as many of my libertarian friends in the United States tell me, things may look bad, but actually 2016 is the best year in human history overall. The broad historical trends are good. Adding to that, 
We just had the most divisive election uh, since 1860, and there was just about zero violence leading up to the election. There was essentially zero violence on election day. There's been just a little bit of violence afterwards. I don't think anybody has been killed. Um, at, but my point is, the democracy in America, while it's sick in many ways, it actually worked. The voting was honest. I mean, there were observers coming to make sure that, you know, <laughs> you know are we a banana republic, as, as many people are now saying? Uh, but we all behaved actually pretty civilly, not in our discourse necessarily, but in terms of violence, there was essentially none. Um, and ultimately what happened, there was, a, there was a really beautiful column by the conservative columnist Peggy Noonan um, in which she, uh, she pointed out that, um, um, that there's actually something kind of beautiful about what happened, that um, Trump had no ground game, no real research, he was a mess, it was a terrible campaign, nobody called the voters, nobody drove them to the polls. He won because people were sick of what was going on, and they chose to go themselves. And the election was won by basically a dispossessed, a very large group of people who nobody's been speaking for, who a lot of people have been speaking down to. Um, and they, it, whether you like it or not, it, it actually was a demonstration of democracy in action. Now, for the bad news, um, the bad news, I mean, much, you know, uh, uh, I... I don't think that Donald Trump has the temperament to be president. I'm concerned about many things. Um, um, but what I'm most concerned about as a social psychologist who studies political civility is that things were getting really bad in terms of our ability to listen to each other and trust each other before. And now, if you can just imagine what it was like <clears throat> for the left to believe that it was on the verge of demographic eternity, like, this is it. You know, the Republicans will never win again. And the only question on all of our minds was... How big will the victory be? Will, will the Democrats take the Senate? They might. Could they take the House? It's possible. And so to go from that, <clears throat> and my wife and I were with some neighbors on Election Day evening. The New York Times had this incredible meter that showed you the exact odds at every second, given every bit of information. And it was 70%, you know, 80%, 70%, 80%. And everybody, you know, there was a mood across the whole nation on the left. And then you can, you can imagine what it felt like for those needles to dip to 50 and, be going, and then they dip to, and, and, and so you can understand why um, people on the left, it, it, so my report from America, it is the zombie apocalypse. If you walk <laughs> around there, you will see people in a daze. They have no idea what has happened, but they know it's really bad and they w want to kill someone. Um, so that's my report from America. Nick, over to you. <laughs> Well, well, John, I mean, I, I think everybody here will, will, will feel how uncanny uh, your description is in its familiarity in terms of people expecting a particular result and then being shocked uh, that, yeah, that, that right. quite the reverse happened because a, a very, very similar mood uh, was around in the run-up to the, uh, uh, the referendum. And again, and again, that sense of sort of uh, that the whole system, and I, and I mean the sort of political uh, system and the system amongst the sort of political elite and the commentariat and all the pollsters who just mis misread uh, sentiment was as, was as profound in this country yeah. as it clearly is in the, in the States. I mean, just a few, uh, um, a few uh, important correctives right from the outset. I mean, the first thing is, this is all about, this evening is about populism. And uh, the assumption uh, is that uh, John and I uh, dislike populism. Populism is... Uh, sort of redolent with kind of 
uh, uncontrollable rages and angers and passions, whereas liberalism, at least the liberalism I believe in, is about reason and rationality and evidence and so on and so forth. I think it's important to remember populism can be a, can be a very positive... I mean, Gandhi was a kind of populist. You know, if, if populism is about challenging a, a, a complacent elite, challenging an established order, speaking for people who are not spoken for, populism is a really, really important antidote for complacency in politics. And also, self-evidently, huge numbers of really decent, good people voted for Donald Trump, even though I find his politics abhorrent, and voted for Brexit, even though I think Brexit is terrible for this country. So it's incredibly important, and you write very powerfully about that, not to allow the kind of shock of these events to do what kind of comes most naturally, I think, to people, which is then to retreat into your corners and sort of throw rocks at the other side and say, you're all wrong. You're, you know, I, I think that's kind of, kind of important. And also, certainly in the United Kingdom, one of the interesting things, John, is that since, and I wonder whether this will happen in the States, is that the, the, the victors, uh, which is what victors always are entitled to do, they start rewriting history. So if you listen to a lot of the public commentary now in the United Kingdom post-Brexit, you'd basically think that everyone voted Brexit except for Ken Clark and myself. Uh, <laughs> everybody, as one, spoke again. You know, what is airbrushed completely out of the record is that more people voted for the losing side than have ever won for a victorious winning party in a general election ever. Ever. 16.1 million people is considerably more than, I think, the largest tally won by any successful uh, prime minister. Actually, it was John Major. Got, what was it? Just over 14 million mm. in, uh, in 1992. So that's also what's happening, is that mm. the shock, the kind of dismay... And, and then now, of course, the, the kind of, in many ways, the kind of rewriting of what ran, what led, uh, what led uh, up to it. My own view, we'll come on to this in a minute, but... Um, you have, uh, for those who've not read John's book, I would strongly urge you to do so because he, he really lifts the lid on some sort of profound kind of moral, cultural, psychological reflexes to which we're all susceptible, even if we don't know it, which I think provide an absolutely unique perspective on why we behave the way we do. But on a much more, you know, I'm a politician, so on a much more superficial level, um, uh, I, I mean, there are lots and lots of things in the United Kingdom which were bubbling up for a long time. The end of the Cold War and the kind of dissolving of all the ideological glues that, that kind of slightly ossified politics between right and left, you know, the state, the market, high tax, low tax, the kind of politics many of us grew up with. That had sort of, you know, the, the disappearance of class-based politics, um, big demographic changes, which have had a huge effect on, uh, on, on politics as well, the so, social media and so on. But of all of them, the two most proximate causes that I would single out uh, are first and foremost the, um, the economic crisis in 2008. I think it is impossible to exaggerate. I certainly say this anecdotally as a, as a constituency MP in South Yorkshire. I think it is impossible to exaggerate how angry that left yeah. our millions of our fellow citizens, with totally good reason. You know, you, you speak to folk who kind of say, look, the bank has screwed up, you politicians screwed up, the regulators screwed up, and I haven't had a pay rise in eight, year, eight years. I mean, that's the longest period of time... For, for many, many people on lower middle incomes not to have a real terms wage increase, well, certainly since the oil shock in the early 1970s, possibly since the Second World War. So I think that sense of kind of, oh, God, you guys, you keep promising that things are going to get better. They don't for me. You screwed up in 2008. N not a single bank has ended up, in this country at least, behind, behind bars. A little bit different in the States. I think that's one massive proximate... I mean, I would go so far as to say if 2008 had not happened, I wouldn't be surprised if the Brexit vote might have gone differently. And the second one, which then I think uh, compounded 
that sense of disenfranchisement and rage was just the nightly spectacle on our television screens of people pouring into Europe from these scary conflicts happening kind of in the, in, in the Middle East and we didn't know what's going on and where are they going and why can no one tell us how many they are and where, oh my gosh, people are blowing themselves up and trying to kill people in Paris and Brussels. That elicits such a visceral sense of kind of a lack of control, which is why I think that the take-back control refrain, right. which you may know, John, was the very sort of pungent refrain for the Brexit case just resonated so much with people who just saw a system mm -hmm. which in the most elemental sense, like who's coming in and out of your community, was out of control. Um, I think those two things... I mean, in many ways, when I describe it like that, I'm fascinated there were 48% people who voted for Remain um, because I think that was an incredibly heady emotional mix. I don't know whether that resonates yeah. with you. But so you're saying that the two are the 2008 financial crisis and immigration yes. from the Middle East because of the wars. Yeah. Those are the two. And, the, and the, what I'd okay. call the kind of Mediterranean yes. migration crisis right. in Europe. No, I agree. Those were two gigantic but, shocks shared by Europe. And the violence, Europe. the violence which yeah. was rightly or wrongly associated in the public mind with that. That's right. So I'll just uh, first add to what you said about populism. Uh, so I think we both are very much in agreement that, that, popu that we're not... Even though the, the, the session here is what's wrong with populism, what's the matter with... Or what's, something about populism is the title of this evening, I think. <laughs> is, it, is that it? Uh, the rise of populism and the... Okay, there it is. Um, so, I mean, the way that I think about populism and democracy, populism is like the sword of Damocles hanging over the politicians. Populism is a problem because it's really, really hard to make good economic policy, and it, when populists have influenced that economic policy, is usually much, much worse. Just ask Argentina and compare it to Singapore or Sweden. So populism is, I think, a bad thing uh, in terms of governance and uh, economic policy, but it's a very, very good thing in terms of there being a sort of Damocles, there being an in case of emergency and massive dissatisfaction, break glass, let the demons out. We don't want the demons to come out, but if politics, if politi and you say this very well in your book, it's something about liberal, the essence of it is holding politics to account. If politicians are not, don't have the threat of people saying, no, I hate this, then it can go much, much worse. So we're not here to say populists are bad. I think we're here to say, what went so wrong that there's an angry populist backlash, which we both understand and even to a large extent empathize with? And how can we avoid this happening in the future? How can we get better politics? So I, I think, again, we're very much on the same page there. Right? Okay, so as for the causal story, um, uh, so that's what's on everybody's mind, I think, is you know, what is happening and why is it global? We all are so used to our own national stories um, and trying to change those narratives to make our side look good and their side look bad. And suddenly it's, it's everywhere and it's not just our two countries. Um, there's even hints of, a couple, you know, hints of it in Korea, which has had an economic slowdown and um, populism in, in Australia. So what's going on? And I, I completely agree with the two or three causes that you mentioned. Um, I would just add what, what I'm what I've been doing in my writing recently, because uh, instead of talking about this stuff, I'm supposed to be writing a book on capitalism and morality. <laughs> and, and how do you get capitalism... Small um, little how do you, yeah. um, So that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I've been, I've been reading about the history of capitalism and what happens when nations adopt free market policies. And what happens is wealth goes skyrocketing upwards. And it's not just that the rich get richer, it's that everybody gets richer. And then, a generation or two later, everyone gets rights. 
And so that's why in the long run, the world's getting better and better and better. And if we were having this conversation two years ago, I would very much agree with my libertarian friends who say, look, I mean, in the broad sweep of history, it's amazing how good everything is. What's amazing, what's happening. But there are some interesting paradoxes. There are some interesting ways in which the progress of a free market society creates conditions that undermine either the progress of a free market society or democratic capitalism. And so here's, here's the main one I want to put out here for our discussion. Um, I, I've spent a lot of time reading the work of the, the psychologists and sociologists who create the World Values Survey. They survey, it started in Europe, now it's global, uh, every seven years that you can see this, these beautiful maps showing the whole world and where they are on this two-dimensional value space. And so Sweden and Scandinavia is in the upper right. That means they have, their values are the most, um, uh, it's, a, it's a like freedom-loving, uh, emancipative, that's the word, Emancipa- freedom or emancipative values, and they're the most secular rational. So that's Sweden. And then the bottom left, from my perspective here, bottom left is like uh, mostly African and Islamic countries that still have the values appropriate to an agricultural society that has no trust in government, that has no faith that there will be food six months from now. So it's very, very different sets of values. As countries get wealthy, they move up and then to the right. They move to that zone where Scandinavia is now. And that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. What happens is then everyone's values change. In the next generation, they really begin to care a lot more about women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, human rights, the environment. So you get this very progressive shift in values. Okay, so with this sort of audience, I'm sure that all sounds great. So that's step one. But here's step two. Once you have these incredibly prosperous, peaceful, progressive societies... They do, the people there begin to do a few things. Um, first of all, it's not everybody who has those values. It's everybody in the capital city and the university towns. They all have these values. They're, so if you look at our countries, you know, in America, we're like pretty retrograde in some ways, but if you look at our, those, our bubble places, they're just like Sweden. And that means that these people now think that, you know, nation states, they're so arbitrary. And, you know, just, I mean, just imagine, imagine if there were no countries. It isn't hard to do, you know? <laughs> Imagine if there was nothing, nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. So this is, this is the way the values shift. And when, so this is what I and others are calling the globalists. Like the new left-right is like the globalists and, versus the nationalists. And so the globalist ethos is tear down the walls, tear down the borders. Nation states are arbitrary. Why, you know, why should my government privilege the people who happen to be born here rather than people who are much poorer elsewhere? And so you get this globalist idea. You begin to get even a denial of patriotism. Uh, the claim, there's some hor- uh, horrible, there's some pictures going around uh, right-wing media now in the United States, protesters, anti-Trump protesters holding up signs that say patriotism is racism. So you get people acting in this globalist way, inviting immigration, spitting on the nation-state spitting on the country and people who are patriotic, um, and uh, very opposed to assimilation when there is integration, because that, as we say in America, on the, people on the left would say that's cultural genocide. So this is step two, is you get um, wealthy, wonderful, successful societies that are so attractive to poor people around the world, you get a flood of immigration, and they're met by the globalists who say, welcome, 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 don't assimilate, because we don't want to deny you your culture. And this leads to step three which is this triggers an incredible emotional reaction in people who have the psychological type known as authoritarianism. Now, it's a very negative term, um, but 
there's a lot of psychological diversity in this world. There are some people who are attracted to the Leninist vision, the, the John Lennon vision. There are other people who are more parochial, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, there are people who really care about hearth and home and God and country, and um, they are actually friends of, of order and stability, and they can, they're friends of many good things about civic life, but when they perceive that everybody's coming apart, the moral world is coming apart, that's when they get really racist, homophobic, uh, they want to clamp down, they want to restore moral order, and if anybody here saw Donald Trump's acceptance speech at the Republican National Committee, that's exactly what he said. He modeled himself after Richard Nixon's 1968 speech, a time when cities are burning, there are riots, and Nixon came in, law and order will be restored, and that's basically what Trump's whole speech was. So what I'm saying is successful democratic capitalist societies create the, they change values, they generate wealth, they invite people in, and then they make some of the people act in ways that trigger the other people to be furious, and those other people actually have a point because you have to have trust in social capital to have a redistributive welfare state. Mm -hmm. This is getting a little too complicated. My point is just that, yes, the economy matters, and economic changes matter, but they matter in ways that always run through psychology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, I must say... I think some of your description of sort of globalists, I mean, by definition, it has to be slightly stereotypical. I mean, or in other words, well, yeah. it, it, might it might reside in sort of the most affluent, educated parts of Sweden and kind of university towns here in the States. But mm. I mean, most people, I would have thought, are not, uh, including, including many liberal globalists, would not... What, what was the thing on the placard? Patriotism is... Oh, patriotism is racism. Yeah, I mean, which is absurd. And actually, one of the things that I think we need to do as, we, as, as, as the kind of liberal left, centre-left in this country, kind of dusts itself down and gets up and, and, and tries to rediscover a sense of direction in British politics, is not to shun patriotism. Mm -hmm. There is nothing... I mean, there are different forms of patriotism. Some forms of patriotism, of course, can shade into bigotry and so on and so forth. But everybody here will remember the uplifting a wholly positive sense of patriotism in which we all bathed at the time of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. you know, the British Olympics here was just... And it was actually... It was, it was curious because it was an eruption of sort of positive, kind of almost sepia-tinted patriotism at a time of great economic anxiety and distress. I, I was in government at the time and it was at the height of all the controversy about the early uh, budget cuts and so on that the, 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 the coalition government was introducing at the time. And then out of this sort of chrysalis-like emerged this kind of real collective pride in what we were doing. Yeah. It became a little bit... It became a little bit mawkish at times. You know, the, I remember the, the Mary Poppins coming Yeah, down Yeah, it was a little bit. And the, yeah. but, but it was still really, really positive. And there's no reason, there's no reason why you know, liberal folks should in any way shun that. Because I think what you illustrate so powerfully in your book, uh, books is, is that um, identity and a, and a longing for belonging is an incredibly visceral right. uh, sentiment amongst people. And, if that is, and, if, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And I guess the the sort of circle that we need to try and square on the progressive side of politics is how to embrace patriotism with as much authentic conviction as the right traditionally have done. I mean, the, the Brexit referendum, it, it, I mean, it, it was astonishing to see the way, and this was partly because of some incredibly powerful and very clever vested interests in the British printed press here who were very cleverly kind of portraying the Brexit option mm -hmm. as the kind of Union Jack option, and as, and as if advocating that the United Kingdom should remain a leading member of this astonishing thing, which is the creation of this mm -hmm. European club, was somehow, I mean, it was 
pretty well equated with being an unpatriotic option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The moment that happens, you lose the argument. Because yeah. if, you, if, you, if, you if you don't make it something which you can be proud of as a people yeah. and a community and a nation, it's incredible. You really are, from that point onwards, uh, kind of, um, you know, you're, 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 you're fighting uphill. And that was very, it was, it was very, I, I don't know whether it was deliberate or by accident, but the way that over time, the, the unilateralist, sort of almost isolationist option became the proud patriotic one was, yeah. was, uh, was, was devastatingly successful. It's one of the things that we need to learn. The, the one thing I wanted to ask you about is because you write about how this is all seen through the prism, no, not even seen through the prism, it's partly um, crystallized in the very difficult debate about immigration. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think one of the things you've just hinted at is that maybe what is going on about immigration isn't actually about sort of... In the UK, we have an upset, or rather the Conservative Party, bluntly, has an obsession with the net immigration statistics. Mm-hmm. In other words, how many people leave the country, how many people come in, you net that off, mm-hmm. and then you come up, hey, presto, it's apparently some magical number. I mean, it's absurd. Mm-hmm. You could have a million people leave, a million people come in, mm-hmm. and you've got a net immigration statistic of zero, and apparently you've right. achieved you know, utopia. Mm-hmm. It's absurd. But anyway, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the way they talk about it, whereas I think your writing actually puts, puts the emphasis where it should be. It's not really about a statistical net figure. It's about people's sense of whether they're they're sharing a space in which people, however much they might hail from different Mm -hmm. backgrounds, communities, religions, nonetheless can congregate around the same language, the same set of values, and so on. In other words, it's more about assimilation, really, Mm -hmm. that that, that sets off psychological reactions more than than kind of... Mm -hmm statistical uh, inflows and outflows. Is that, is that a fair...? Yes, that, that's right. The, so the, the, the one piece of psychology I want to put on the table here relevant to this um, is you have to look at politics, I think, by looking for the sacred values of each group. So we evolved, human nature evolved for tribalism and religion, small-scale religion of tribes. And that was the way we lived for the last 100,000 years with roots going much further back than that. Um, and so what we're really good at is putting up something. It could be a tree or a river or an ancestor, and then we circle around it, and then we can actually all trust each other. And this is, this is one of the main social, evolutionary innovations of human nature is we have the ability to make something sacred, we circle around it, we all worship it, and then we can go fight others, and we are the descendants of people who were able to do that. So that's tribalism. Now, in politics, always look for what each side makes sacred. And for anybody who remembers World War II, certainly in Britain and America, the country, the flag, and then freedom, democracy, all these other virtues. And I hope we'll talk about universities in a bit. But the idea of freedom, liberty, and then after World War II, fighting the communists, so the idea of freedom, 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 liberty. So it was a good time to be a liberal. Liberal meant liberty, freedom, fighting for liberty. So the older generation has those values from circling around during the war and afterwards. But then we get the new left in the 1960s. We get the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 1990s, in 1989 and then into the 90s. Um, and we get a rise, and because I teach at a university, I'm surrounded by this. We get a rise of a new set of sacred values around racism, sexism, oppression, and basically the sacred victim. Mm. And this is the clash. This is part of the clash. If you have a group, if you have groups on the left whose essentially their religion is fighting racism, well, that's a very admirable thing to do, but if you, it becomes a religion, you become fundamentalist, now everything that contradicts that must fall. So just to give a very vivid example, uh, I taught at uh, the University of Virginia for 16 years. Uh, my, my children were born there. I love UVA. 
Um, and at UVA, we all worship Thomas Jefferson. He was the founder of our university, obviously the writer of the Declaration of Independence. Um, so we worship Thomas Jefferson, and every president who ever of the university who writes something always quotes Thomas Jefferson. Well, all university presidents had to write to their students a day or two afterwards because the students are freaking out, uh, thinking that it's the end of the world, that they're going to be murdered in their sleep by Trumpists. Um, so every university president has to write to the student body to say something without being too political, but acknowledging the pain and trauma. And so the president of UVA um, quotes Thomas Jefferson. Well, um, some professors, uh, joined by some students, write a, an open letter to the president saying, stop quoting Jefferson. Jefferson was a racist, a slave owner, and a rapist. If you quote Thomas Jefferson at a time like this, you are dividing us. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is as sacrilegious as could be. This is like going to church and saying, stop quoting Jesus. Okay? What do you think the parishioners are going to do? So the alumni are furious at this. Mm-hmm. But my point is, it is like a new religion. And so, but every, every political movement is like a religion. So to bring it back to immigration, the new religion, one of the new religions, is all about diversity and inclusion. Mm. Now you've got immigrants coming in. My God, we all saw those, the horrible photos of children dying. Of course you feel sympathy. What do you do about it? Well, if it's your central religion, then of course you welcome them. And if anybody says, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're linked to terrorism, they're, they're mm. forcing us to change our weight, if anybody says that, they're a racist. So you have the dawn of this new religion, which in my view is extremely illiberal. Mm. I, I mean, I, I may be wrong. I, I think that... Um that your description of sort of um, what, what, what in kind of uh, tabloid ease would be called political correctness gone mad, that's yes. the way we talk about it in this country, yes. I think it does appear to be more acute oh, yes. it's much worse on, on U.S. campuses yes. than here. It, I mean, you have it here. You know, no, we've we're, had, we're one year ahead of you. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, no, no, it's no, no. And, and, no, no. We've had some really interesting incidents. Uh, I mean, I hope this is not apocryphal, but I did read some time ago that Jermaine Greer was oh, excluded yeah. from speaking at a university somewhere because yeah. what she said about transgender um, she committed politics blasphemy. was wrong and so on. She and, and, and I, just, I, just think, I just personally consider that as downright illiberal. I mean, just exactly. stopping people talking. Right. It's not quite the dynamic, or rather that's not the prism, I think, through which this very, very vexed issue of immigration is seen in this country, or maybe not quite in the same, same way. Okay. Um, I mean, one of the things that perplexes me so much, and I don't have any neat answers to this at all, is if it, if it was as easy as... Uh, people are concerned about immigration, therefore uh, Theresa May or whoever's in power needs to clamp down immigration and all will be well and we'll all yeah, become Sweden right. again because everyone will feel it kind of, I'd kind of, I'd, I mean, I wouldn't sort of feel very comfortable with it, but you can kind of, but it doesn't, it's not as simple as that. No, I mean, in the, in the referendum, the places, some of the places, London notably, that had mm-hmm. the highest levels of immigration, um, had the lowest levels mm-hmm. of people voting for Brexit, and conversely as well. I mean, uh, red car in Cleveland, in the, you know, the, the northeast. That the, the, the there, I think the vote for, for Brexit was like 67% of people who voted voted for Brexit. And when they told, when they were asked by pollsters why, they were they were their response was because of immigration. Mm-hmm. I think the sum total of people <clears throat> living in red car in Cleveland who weren't born in the local area or weren't born in the United Kingdom is two percent. So you've got this, you know, so it can't, it's not as simple as that. Right. It, so, so clearly there is a perception of a threat to a sense exactly. of belonging or a way of life, and rest of it, which is not consistent. I mean, there are some exceptions in, in the UK, mm-hmm. particularly the, in Lincolnshire and East Anglia, you've got certain communities linked to an agricultural, vegetable and fruit, fruit uh, uh, growing uh, uh, economy mm-hmm. where there have been very, very significant changes. But if you yeah. set that aside, actually it doesn't work. And in the same way across Europe, 
I, I talk a lot to um, European politicians in other European countries, and I say to them, and, and, we, and we privately bemoan how the world's going mad and so on and so forth, uh, and, then, uh, and then you sort of say, well, yeah, this politics of immigration, it keeps coming up on the doorstep and so on and so forth, and then they say, but we don't get it because... And I've, heard, I've had Spanish politicians, Dutch mm-hmm. politicians, yep. French politicians, German it. politicians saying to me, we don't get you Brits because we have a, we, they say we have huge public concern about immigration in France, Spain, mm-hmm. Netherlands, Germany, but it's about immigration from outside Europe. Mm-hmm. And they say, you guys seem to be completely hung up about the most culturally homogenous form yeah. of, of, of you know, Spanish nurses, yeah. decent Portuguese nurses working in social care homes. But it's interesting that A... The, the, the map in the, uni- in the United Kingdom about uh, concern- expressed mm-hmm. concerns about immigration bears yeah. almost relation, no relation yeah. to what's actually happening in their communities, and conversely, mm-hmm. that across Europe, the expressed concerns about immigration are actually talking about different kinds of okay. immigration. So, so I, I see two problems in that way of thinking that I see all the time on the left. The first is to start with an economic analysis and to say, well, why are they voting against their interest? And many people on the left don't get, because they are globalists, they don't get that the idea of the nation is something sacred. Um, they don't get that, they don't get ideas of patriotism. So it's the first thing is to focus on economic analysis. Um, and uh, the second is to act as though the community is just local, because again, they don't get the nation. So, um, so I often am told, and whenever I talk about immigration, I get exactly what you said. Well, why is it that the areas with the most immigrants are the most tolerant? Therefore, if we just flood the zone, flood every <laughs> town with immigrants, they'll all get tolerant. Okay, now it's obviously not going to work, in part because we have in America, and I'm sure in Britain too, people move where they feel comfortable. And so people who have a globalist John Lennon-type brain, if they're born in central Kansas, they're going to get to Chicago as fast as they can, as soon as they can leave home. And then they'll get to New York or London, and vice versa. Um, and the other thing is, is you know, I remember after 9-11 happened, and, and the, people, you know, the people in New York and Washington, or in New York especially, were not all gung-ho for war. And I remember some of them saying, why are the people out in the red areas, why are they so upset about this? They weren't even attacked. As though the 9-11 attack happened to New York City and Washington, D.C., mm, not mm, the mm. biggest collective trauma to the United States since 1941. Mm, mm. And so there's a kind of a blindness I see over and over again mm. on the left where they approach things in economic terms. It really is like a color blindness, like they're missing receptors. And I think this is very much a problem with the, the leaders of the European Union mm. and those who want ever closer union. I think they're, what they're missing, what they're missing is you can have diversity within a shared sense of identity. Mm. And if you don't have that shared sense of identity, it's going to be very divisive. But can, can, I, but, can I just challenge you a little bit? Just, uh, well, one little, sort of almost a footnote. Just this thing about, because it has become quite fashionable to say, in the face of this populist eruption, mm-hmm. Trump and Brexit, you know, the whole European project is utterly misguided because it's trying to build these castles in the air, yeah. which doesn't mean anything to anybody. I personally think that's a very Anglo-American response. Mm-hmm. Okay. I personally say this because my mum's Dutch and I've got a Spanish mm-hmm. wife and so on. If you, if you, I describe this in the book. If you speak to... I admit, I admit this as a generational aspect to it. But, you know, for the Germans, the French, the Dutch, the, Italian, the founding members of the European community, it wasn't a castle in the sky. It, this was a visceral expression mm-hmm. of peace over war right. after two massive, bloody you know, conflicts which has consumed and almost, yeah. dis, you know, destroyed two generations on the, uh, on, the, on, on the trot. In other words, there was a very visceral emotional commitment, not an intellectual one mm-hmm. at all, to, to, to the idea of coming together and making war unthinkable. But equally, much later, if you go to Greece or Portugal or Spain, I, I, I remember my, my wife comes from a small 
agricultural uh, village in the, in, the, in the middle of Castilla Leon, and I remember speaking to her about 20 years ago now, to her, um, uh, to her uncle, who was a sugar beet farmer, and he didn't know very much about the European Union when, uh, when, uh, or European community when Spain joined, but he was so proud, so proud, visceral, emotionally yeah. proud, that Spain had arrived at the top table of European democracies and put fascism behind it. Okay, I think one of the reasons right. why... Why pride. Brexit kind of is not that surprising in that historical oh, perspective sorry. is that for the UK, we've never had those profound emotional roots in which, in which our European uh, vocation is synonymous with a national kind of mission. You know, mm. when it was debated in the early 70s, when I was obviously just a small kid, but if, you just, you know, if I read the history books, it was kind of almost... You know, the, the, the referendum in the mid-70s was, was almost conducted as if it was a sort of pounds and pence yeah. calculation right. in the grocer's yeah. store. It was just That's exactly. Right. Right. It was, there was nothing. And again, yeah. and again in this Brexit referendum, the reason why the Remain camp was so, was so kind of tin-eared was that there was no emotion in it. It was all yeah. about you'd be better off and we'll take a pocket calculator out. And that does set us apart, actually, for historical mm-hmm. reasons. Um, and now, of course, if you go to Central and Eastern Europe... You know, young, young, young people in, 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 in Poland, in Hungary, mm-hmm. for them it's quite a visceral thing that they can now get on a train yeah. and travel from Budapest mm-hmm. and Warsaw throughout. Yeah. So I don't, think, I don't think we should allow ourselves in a sort of Anglo-American debate to overlook the fact that actually for many other people across generations in other countries, the European project isn't a folie de grandeur. It's actually something which is quite visceral to them. Yeah. So we should, we should yeah. uh, go to audience questions about five minutes. Let's just... Uh, what the hell do we do? What's, so, what's, you know, let's, so let's just, we'll just put a few ideas out there and then let's talk about it together. Uh, if we have well, apart s- apart yeah. from some of the things that I think we already touched on, um, I, I certainly, when I saw, obviously speaking from my ideological perspective, uh, sort of liberal internationalist uh, um, um, sort of belief in empiricism, reason, debates, so on and so forth, I, I do think we need to be less... Um, we need to be less cautious about trying to embrace patriotism ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important. I, I we, can't just leave, we can't just leave the positive emotions of identity to, to, to our opponents. Uh, I, I agree very much with what you've written about, that you know, if we unpack some of the immigration stuff, maybe we need to be a little bit harder-edged on issues of assimilation, mm-hmm. even as we remain open as societies and economies. Um, I think we need to give the populace quite a lot of rope. You know, let the Brexiteers... Yeah. Uh, uh, deliver this utopia, apparently, which is going to, which beckons uh, the moment we yank ourselves out of the world's largest borderless marketplace. Uh, let Trump, you know, let, 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 let Trump inflict, you know, some of his crazy experiments on the British and the American people. I mean, I, I mean it. I mean, you know, they, 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 are, they are now the victors. And, and I don't know what it's yeah. like in the States. Uh, but in here in the UK, the Brexiteers, they're, they're really, it's really curious to watch. They don't yet seem to accept that they've won. They don't yet accept that they, with victory comes responsibility. You need to provide answers. So they still keep repeat, repeating all the slogans of the referendum campaign. Because if you push them and ask them, okay, what are you actually going to do? Mm-hmm. They, you know, they kind of fall out and so on. So I think we need to continue press, press on that. But the final thing I would say is I kind of think it's really, really important. It's an easy thing to say, but I feel this really strongly, that liberals, smaller liberals in the broadest sense, should not be browbeaten. In fact, what liberalism should be doing is taking a kind of leaf out of the populist book and developing a more visceral, emotive, and compelling mm-hmm. refrain for liberalism. That's what we should be doing, not kind of constantly licking our wounds and saying, oh, woe, woe is us, what have we done mm-hmm. kind of wrong? Which is where, when you kind of talk about the globalists, 
I kind of slightly part company from you because I kind of think, yeah, of course, that's an absurdly kind of uber-political correct kind of mm-hmm. version of glo- globalists or, or the globalist worldview clearly is counterproductive and will lead to a counterreaction. So as I said, we're not going to disagree, but we're going to be able yeah. to sort of build on each other here. Because, uh, yeah, I could not have come up with that strategy that you're right. Populism has to be given a chance to succeed or fail because uh, if, you know, if, if, it, if things turn out very badly for Britain or the United States, then there would at least be, there would be an openness to trying something different and to re- returning to new ideas about liberalism, which I hope the left will be reinventing in its think tanks as it licks its wounds all over the, all over the Western world and comes out with a much more appealing version of liberalism um, that is not based on identity and identity politics and that does, and this is what I, again, there's a theme throughout your book, is the need for conversation, the need for debate, the need to challenge. Um, I, uh, I used to always say my favorite philosopher was David Hume, but now it's John Stuart Mill. Um, in oh, you are a liberal after all then. Yeah, yeah. I'm, that's right. I, yeah. As soon as I cross the Atlantic, I'm a liberal. Um, uh, John Stuart Mill, one of his, one of his lines, it's my favorite, is he says, he who knows only his own side of the case mm. knows little of that. And this is what I think we need to understand about ourselves. Human nature, uh, human nature is, in, is, is really unsuited for life in large, multi-ethnic democracies. We're a tribal, we're a small tribal living primate. And somehow we've created conditions where we can actually do it pretty well. But we have to always be vigilant. We can't take it for granted. That's what mm. we've done, I think. Mm. We have to be always vigilant that we're, in a way, living above our design constraints. And I think we need to recognize this is the urgent need of the 21st century, is to really think through democracy, governance, and, and morality. In America, we have three giant divides, race, class, and po- left-right. Mm. One of them has been getting steadily better over the last 40 years. Two have been getting worse. And the left is entirely focused on the one that gets better, which is race. It is, decade after decade, it gets better and better. And our class divide gets worse and worse, and our political divide is getting worse and worse. What's going to do us in, even though things look tense racially right now, what's going to do us in is ultimately, well, populism is in part the class divide, but what's really going to do us in is that we're losing the ability to have a democracy when the political divide is so full of fury. Mm. So the final causal factor I'll put in here in our discussion, then we'll throw it open, is um, we've mentioned social media a little bit. I've only really come to appreciate the incredible power of social media to activate all of our tribal sentiments in ways that make democracy unlikely. Because I follow a lot of people on Twitter, I now see these incredible outrages. Mm. It, it used to be, when I was growing up, like once a month, there'd be a new story about the terrible things the Republicans did, and we could all talk about how terrible Republicans are. Um, and now, whichever side you're on, there's five an hour. Because <laughs> any, you know, if a swastika is drawn on a locker in a junior high school in Illinois, mm. everybody on the left will hear about it. Mm. And if an idiot holds up a sign saying patriotism is racism anywhere in America, uh, everyone on the right will hear about it. Mm. And so everyone is immersed in a river of outrage. And it's very hard to see how we turn down the volume. Mm. So I think the very idea of democracy is being severely challenged by new technology, by high levels of immigration without assimilation, although I think immigration with assimilation could work quite, fu- quite well. So I think we have our work cut out for us, mm-hmm. and, and we really need to, and, I, and again, I think the, a, a broadly liberal framework, drawing from the hundreds of years of liberal tradition, I think is the best framework for us to start the discussion mm. in. So with that, we'd love to have your questions. Okay. And, mm-hmm. Hi there, good evening. Uh, my name is Werner Kreinberg. Um, and my, my question is for, uh, for Nick, Nick Goedenavond. Goedenavond. Um, it's the, uh, not, not too far from here, there, there will be an appeal, the government 
assuming it will lose again uh, the case about triggering Article 50 and whether it needs to be debated in Parliament. Uh, my, my question is, what are your views on that, and do you think it will actually happen that Brexit can be stopped? Look, the, whole, the weird thing about this whole court thing is it's, it's a complete sort of phony... It's a phony dispute because Theresa May knows that whenever she wants to, she can get a vote in Parliament to support her negotiating uh, position vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the European Union, almost regardless of what she says or does because the party of opposition, the Labour Party, inexplicably in my view, but that's, there you go, have said that they will vote for Article 50, whatever. They've said that, right? Mm. So, so there is simply no impediment at all to Theresa May tomorrow tabling Article 50. So it's a complete, this whole thing, anyone who thinks it's going to stop Brexit, and of course it won't, the only thing which can stop Brexit, which is not going to happen between now and the Supreme Court ruling, or still less between now and next March, is if in the next, I don't know, I can't put a figure on it, two, three, four years, whatever, the British people feel that actually the implications of what Brexit means in reality is quite different to the, what I would regard, sort of false utopia that they were sold. You can't change a decision by the people in a referendum other than through a change of mind of the people. It can't, it can't be, and shouldn't, actually, in my view, be stopped through jiggery-pokery in Parliament. But the weird thing, just for those who are interested in the kind of my, political minutiae of all of this, is that, is, that, is that Theresa May has decided to spend a huge amount of taxpayers' money and waste a lot of time contesting something in the courts when she knows her position is unassailable in Parliament. It's kind of, I, I, if I was an advisor, I'd be tearing my hair out. I'd be saying, what are you doing? Why are you wasting all this, all this time? Uh, particularly because my lawyer friends uh, tell me that one of the ways that the government might be able to strengthen its case in the Supreme Court is to admit, as I believe to be the case, that Article 50 is actually reversible in, in, in reality. So you might have the extraordinary spectacle of a government wasting a huge amount of time and money contesting... Uh, the, uh, the rightful scrutiny of Parliament in the courts, but only doing so by then openly and publicly admitting that this whole wretched thing is actually reversible after, after all. So I, I'm kind of a bit, I'm a bit nonplussed by the whole thing. And, and, I, and, th and that, in answer to your precise question, neither the court case nor the Article 50 vote is the moment, if that's the way you are so dreaming, to reverse or challenge Brexit. The only thing I think what will change people's minds, if at all, is economics, not parliamentary or courtroom drama. Oh, oh, oh who's the... Sorry, I think I'm... Oh, I'm sorry. Whoever sorry. had the microphone sorry. is number one. I'm sorry. It's a bit embarrassing. Sorry. Um, at, at the beginning of that the talk, you both... That was ruthless jumping. That was absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, at the beginning of the talk, you both spoke a little bit about how there was a good side to populism, and I think even the implication of the name of this talk kind of suggests that it is a negative. Right. And I was just wondering when you thought it was that it took on that kind of dirty connotation of being a, a dirty term. Okay. And then whoever has the microphone back there for number four. Good evening, Sally Finster. Um, I'd like to just uh, question Nick Clegg a bit further about uh, him allowing, us all allowing the populists to have their moment and give them a long rope. For us that just see the years ahead of us watching a very slow car crash, mm. I'd really like to bore down the detail and ask you, who have one of the biggest platforms in the country for the, with the Liberal Voice, what are you actually doing 
what are you saying to your Yorkshire constituents who voted for Brexit? And can you give me something more to hold on to when we've got possibly a conversation lasting six months or more as to Mm. what language the Brexit negotiations are going to uh, take place in? And with regards to the America question and the um, election of Trump... What happens if he repeals or tries to repeal um, Roe and Wade? You know, how much of length of rope do you, are we, have we got to sit back and sure. watch them have? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'll just start with a... Okay. I'll start with a very quick point about populism. Um, the populism that's consonant with your side of the spectrum's views is, is, is just a people fighting for justice against oppression, and the populism of the other side is either racism or socialism. So populism, it depends on whose bull is being gored, I would say, or whose ox, rather, whatever do, it is. Do, do you want to... Oh, and then on the, just on the point uh, about Roe versus Wade... Um, so obviously Trump can't repeal that, but what he will do is appoint Supreme, Justice, Supreme Court justices who, if he gets two or three appointments, they probably would repeal it. Um, as I, I don't know the, all the jurisprudence, but as I understand it, it is based on a kind of a shaky presumption that um, the federal government... So you know, in America, we have a federal system. Almost everything is supposed to be done by the states unless it's specifically allowed by the, uh, allowed by the Constitution. So Roe versus Wade, there is a legitimate argument about the constitutionality of it, whatever you think about abortion. And this is, I think, one of the most difficult things that's going to confront us as a country in America is we have this federalist heritage, which is that states have basically get to decide all the stuff that matters about family and all the sorts of stuff. That's the state-level matter. But in the last 30, 40, since the 60s, everything's been, so much has been kicked up to the federal level, and I think it, it can't work. I think that um, uh, the, the American government is not going to work again in our lifetimes at the federal level. And so the only alternative, I think, is to take as much off the plate, federal plate as possible, kick it either back to the states, or let's hope that private enterprise solves problems, especially around education and health. So very quickly, on, on populism, I mean, the, the, I, mean I mentioned, uh, so read, said rather glibly, you know, Gandhi was a sort of populist of sort. I think what I find ugly about most of the populisms I see now is they seem to be based on, sort of, certainly in, in, in Europe, a roving cast of uh, characters, whether it's Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, whether it's Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, whether it's Alternativa für Deutschland in Deutschland, whether it's Le Pen in France, whether it's Farage here. The thing they all have in common is that they, they profess to sympathize and feel people's anger about the status quo more than any other politician, and then, crucially, they say, and it's those people's fault. It's that person's fault. It's that entity's fault. What is common to all populists is that they take the anger and they say, and that's who's to blame. It's the Mexicans. Build a wall against them. It's Brussels. Pull out of the European Union. It's Islam. Kick out all the Muslims. It's, it's immigration. You know, everything that underpins the politics of populism in Europe. And we might see a lot more of it. You know, this Sunday, I think it is, we might well have a Freedom Party candidate in Austria win the Austrian presidential elections. Renzi might lose the Italian uh, referendum on Sunday too. That might lead to sorts of political turbulence there. Anyway, but one thing that's, that's common to all of them is blame. And, 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 and it's, it's a really nasty, pernicious blame because it's not true and it's false. And it's, you know, what do bullies do? What, but bullies, bullies under duress pick on the weak. I mean, what, how... how 
Trump, classic. I mean, it's classic bully psychology. He's beat up the Mexicans. I mean, it's kind of like... Uh, and I, you just see that over and over again. Um, and I'm sorry, yes, I, I should, it sounds terribly um, hopeless to say, oh, we just got to let the populace kind of screw things up. And I, I didn't mean it, put it like that. Of course you need to be active and do things, uh, whether it's what I obviously do. I spend a lot of time trying to puncture the, 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 what I think is the nonsense and mendacity of the, uh, of the kind of Brexit pitch that has been, in my view, falsely kind of sold to us. Uh, or, I mean, uh, you know, something which I, th- I regard as not only necessary but entirely inevitable, I think there will be a realignment in British politics in the next mm. few years. There has to be. There has to be. Because the <clears throat> pendulum of British politics has got stuck. It's much more stuck than I think people realise. I mean, um, you know, we've got a government with a prime minister who has got no mandate of her own, whose party got whatever it was, 24% of the eligible vote in our crackers electoral system. But, but there's no way anyone can take power away from them. There's no way, because the SNP, unwittingly perhaps, have kneecapped the Labour Party. The Labour Party cannot win under the present arrangements. There's no way they could win. Um, nor, of course, can the Lib Dems on their own, or the Greens, or whatever. So, I mean, inevitably, if you want the pendulum of democracy to swing again, namely that the people in power feel at, s- at least some tremor of fear that someone else might take power away from them, you've got to have a more organised kind of centre-centre-left force uh, contesting against the, the Conservatives compared to what we've got uh, at, uh, at the moment. It's tough because we've got a political system, as you know, uh, particularly the electoral system and the way parties are funded and the vested interests in the press and so on that stack the cards incredibly heavily against any rearrangements or, or new alignments. But it's, it's, it's bound to happen. It's bound to happen in the next few years. Mm. So I, th- I, th- I think, our, should we take any more? Or are we basically, yeah, I think we should. Okay, so, um, wait, did you say one more? No. One more oh, one more round. Okay, very good. All right. Uh, we're, we're, okay, so someone, this, this fellow here, and then let's, we're, we haven't done anything over here. I'm sorry, you people. So is anybody here have a microphone? Is a microphone anywhere over there? Where's the nearest microphone over there? Oh, if I call on you, will the microphone come to you magically? Let's try that. This, this, this boy here, this, you, yep, you're right there. Let's get him a microphone. Um, and then uh, we're, okay, the, uh, you in the back there near the camera. Yes, yeah, you, yes. Okay. So let's uh, do it. So who, I'm sorry, who I, whoever I called on. Oh, yes. This, okay. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm Harry Collins. I want to ask you about nationalism. It, nationalism has been throughout our history, the history of the world. And whatever we do in the short term, it's not going to go away. So in the long term, what do we do with nationalism? Do we try and harness it and use it as a kind of a force for good mm-hmm. in some way? And how do we do that? Or... Do try and cast it aside and... and okay, great, great question. Okay, that's one. And then this boy here. Um, my name is Charlie Hancock. Thank you so much for this talk. It's been really, really interesting. But <laughs> it seems to me... It seems to me that you have not addressed the lies that, the Trump camp, that Donald Trump has told and the lies that the Brexiteers told, and there are several of them. And I think, I think possibly that may be the reason why the Brexit campaign went through and why Donald Trump won the election. Um, and how do we fight these lies, is my question. Hmm. Wow, good question. Okay, so I'll, I'll do the, the nationalism and the, mm. and the lies question. Um, on nationalism, 
Um, while it will always be there, the form that it takes has changed an awful lot. And the national, first of all, nationalism wasn't even there when there were city-states. I mean, it was a very different sort of thing. And then you get nation-states, Europeans sort of invent nation-states. It's a very good invention for a lot of reasons, but then it brings a certain kind of nationalism, especially when it becomes ethno-nationalism. So I think that while nationalism will always be around in some form, um, there are certain kinds that are more pernicious. And ethno or ethnic nationalism is really the kind that most people are worried about. That's the, really the dangerous, the bad kind. Um, and that's, again, why I say that um, assimilation is so, so beneficial. At this talk today on immigration, one of the, one of the fellows had this really great observation that, um, that when, when um, immigrants are expressing how much they love Britain and how glad they are to be here, and actually even expressing some gratitude, that makes people who are prone to ethno-nationalism say, why, yes, this is a great country. And immigrants come here because they think we're so great, and that's going to make them much more generous and welcoming. So there are many forms of nationalism, most of which are not really pernicious. It's the ethnic one that is the problem. So, there, so I think that, depending on the choices we make, that can get more or less severe. <clears throat> As for how we deal with lies, <clears throat> um, this is, you know, there have always been lies, but man, this campaign, and Donald Trump specifically, broke every record. Well, I shouldn't say every record. Look, history is very long, but certainly in the last 50 years, beyond anything we've ever seen in the United States. The, the, the way that he would just say things, the way he doesn't read. He doesn't read books as far as we can tell. Um, um, so he just says stuff. Uh, and how do we deal with it? You can't deal, there's, we can't deal with it like by court order. We can't deal with it by... My general approach to these sorts of questions is take an indirect route. That is... People will believe ever more extreme nonsense the more furious they are at the other side. So to the extent that we are now so, we're all bathed in an absolute river of outrage at the other side, we will believe anything about them. And to the extent that we can calm those passions and return to the levels of hatred that we had for each other in the 1990s, the lies, the the most extreme lies, won't be accepted anymore. Um... (laughs) Can I just, a final word to, to sort of Charlie. I mean, Charlie's absolutely right to, to bring us up short and say we should have talked about it more. Uh, and John's given, uh, you know, a, a brilliant answer. The only thing I would add, Charlie, is the, the problem seems to be that there's quite a lot of evidence, I think, isn't that right, saying, John, that increasingly a lot of voters kind of don't care whether people are lying, or more than that, they even know that they're lying. But they still say... I mean, you see, you hear this, I, I, at least when I read American coverage, you hear a lot of people say, yeah, of course I know he's not going to build a wall against Mexico. It doesn't matter. It's still kind of, it's still kind of got me pumped up because I thought it was... A kind of, of course, I know it's not going to happen. Uh, Boris Johnson is a classic example. If people kind of, I think, knew that this 350 million quid on the, 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 the emblazoned on that bus was complete nonsense. You don't hear about it. They merrily said the next day, oh, of course, we didn't really mean it. And they got away with it. They got away with it. And so, you know, that's the weird thing is that we're kind of now... That people are now signaling things to each other yeah. through hyperbole or downright falsehood because it kind of, it, it kind of in almost sort of lurid terms, signals an emotional connection, which is more important than the fact itself. And that's, and that's tough, and it's really tough for liberals, because liberalism, the J.S. Mill liberalism, kind of has a reverence for fact, yeah. as if yeah. the, the fact itself has, an in, has, a kind of, has a kind of value in itself. But when increasingly for people say, well, I don't really care whether the facts are true or false... It kind, of, it kind of gets me going in a way that I like and that I kind of, kind of identify with. And that's where we're at now. So 
It's a really, and I don't know the answer to that, and it's partly the reason I wrote the book, is how do liberals, how do we become less reasonable in the way that we talk so that we, so we appeal to people's hearts and not just their minds, but don't become, you know, don't, don't follow Trump, or dare I say it, Johnson, uh, in this kind of post-truth world. It's a really difficult balance. What we can't do, which is why I completely agree with John, what we can't do is just punctiliously sit there like sort of accountants or fact-checkers and say, oh, well, that's wrong, that's wrong. It doesn't work. People don't care. They're not listening. So that's, uh, that's the dilemma rather than an answer, but, it, but you put your finger on it, That is one of the big, big dilemmas for modern politics. So I think we should, should not end by just saying, boy, that's a big dilemma. We should, we should make some effort. Okay, let me, you and I need to make some effort to just end on at least some sort of note of inspiration. So while you were talking, I thought of one. Let me give it a try. Um, yeah. But I'll think as well. Um, so, um, so there's an interesting finding in cultural psychology that if you show people a pattern of lines, go, you know, data points that are going up, and you show that to people in, in Europe and America, you show it to Westerners, you say, what's, gonna, what's likely to happen? They say, oh, well, boy, it's going to keep going up. But if you show it to East Asians, the research shows, they say, well, if it goes up, then it will come down, and then it will come up, and then it will go down. And uh, in recent, in the last week or two, many people have been reaching back into American history and back to Plato um, for the, to look at the fortunes of democracies and how they rise and fall. And it's very, very comforting to me, because I often, sometimes I do feel kind of dark about what's happening to, to democracies. Uh, but then you read about what it was like in the 1820s in the United States, when Andrew Jackson was inaugurated, and then how America, driven in part by people, not so much even in government, but people by philanthropists, by activists, who made changes or led to, a, um, uh, led to certain changes that ended up changing the society gradually and set America up for a fantastic late 19th and early 20th, most of the 20th century. So things really do go cyclically um, to some extent. The progress we've made in terms of general values about the broadening circle of respect that everyone is included, and if everyone's not perfectly included now, it's expanding out. This progress, I don't think, can ever be reversed. So some, well, I just said, a, well, all right, who knows? But it, so what I'm saying is, think, even if things look bad now, um, we've been through worse before, things do get better, and to the extent that we can keep talking to each other and uh, somebody said we're both advocating, yes, trying to understand the other side. Yeah, that's exactly right. To the extent that people understand that democracy is a precious thing, that you can't just take it for granted, that you have to mm. come to it with some humility, mm. that you don't have all the answers, and that it's the process. That was, I think, the great invention of British democracy and British civil institutions is a process for limiting power, for getting people together in the scientific community to challenge each other. The Brits have been brilliant at creating institutions that create the framework within which new insights come about. So, uh, Joey, don't lose, uh, don't lose hope. I, you don't, maybe you, uh, uh, well, I think we're all inspired by the eloquence of your question, and I think we're all hoping um, that your generation will not shun politics, but will come to it with a little less vehemence and self-certainty than your parents' generation did. So, can you, uh, can you, can you top that? Okay, then, we can just, then we'll just end there. Yeah. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.